Hello there, I'm Brian Taylor. Down the years, you may have seen me on the telly or heard me on the wireless, but this is different. This is the Brian Taylor Podcast, brought to you by The Herald. I'm speaking to the party leaders, challenging them on their policies, their strategies. You'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll even vote. Scotland's recovery should be in Scotland's hands. Our focus is on Scotland. The nationalists focus on separation. We're going to be asking people in Scotland to vote like our future depends on it, because it really does. Independence would be like Brexit on a rocket to Mars. Everything that Alba does in this election will be a positive contribution to building that independence supermajority. We can choose to focus on what unites us as a country, not what divides us. Today, the podcast guest is Willie Rennie, who leads the Scottish Liberal Democrats. Hear his take on mental health, public services, and shaking up the entire UK. Thanks very much indeed for joining me for this, this Herald podcast, the latest in the series. Let's start with the gigantic question of the moment, the, the, the pandemic, but also more particularly, what is your strategy, Mr. Rennie, for reviving Scotland's economy and society post-pandemic? It's all about investing in people. It's the skills and the talents of people are what make Scotland. So it's about making sure that their mental health recovers, because a lot of people have struggled before the pandemic and uh-huh. it's much more. But also education um, from the very early age, nursery education, all the way through to retraining and reskilling for the new industries that come. So it's all about investing in people's skills and talents, because if we've got good people, good businesses come and we can grow the economy. That's at the centre of it. But but the economy is in, in a mess, to say the least. There are huge UK debt levels in Scotland. The net deficit, according to the JERS calculation, is higher than the UK. And you have the Scottish Chambers of Commerce saying businesses are, and I quote, close to exhaustion. I mean, it's a really desperate economic situation. And I appreciate what you're saying about investing in people. I appreciate what you're saying about mental health. But the economy is going to require tackling and public spending is going to require tackling as well. Well, the public spending is an issue we need to deal with in the long term. We're not going to fix that overnight. It's going to take, this is a once in a probably millennium almost experience. It's what been one phenomenal. Hopes, yeah, yeah. Um, and so we're going to take time to recover this. This is what we have good days for us to cope with these difficulties. In terms of reviving the economy, we're not going to do that by cutting back on public spending. We're going to have to make sure that we continue to invest, invest for the long term. And again, that comes back to people. That is at the centre of what we do. We're also going to have to, of course, deal with infrastructure investments. We're going to have to make sure, for instance, dealing with climate emergency, that we invest my policy for today was a million homes converted from gas to renewable sources for home heating. That's the way to try and meet our climate change targets. That will also create jobs and opportunities. But you talk about investment. That means I, I appreciate why politicians always use that phrase, because you're talking about it as you know bringing a return in terms of future generations. But it does mean public spending. And public spending is, is gigantic at, at, at the moment. I mean, the latest figures from the uh, ONS are, are the, the highest ever um, public sector net borrowing, highest ever, well, high, highest since, since records began. On, on this term in terms of borrowing since 1993 and, and very low central government tax re- receipts. And that's the UK figure. The Scotland figure is is, is within that as well. Do, don't you feel you have to bring those figures down? You have to tackle that deficit as well as, as you describe it, investing. We, we could panic. We could say that we've got this massive deficit, mm-hmm. a, biggest, a bigger debt than we've had ever before. We could panic. 
and we can say we're going to ramp up taxes, but that will just crush consumer confidence. It will crush people. They won't invest. They won't spend. They won't take the opportunities to grow the economy themselves. And we need to give the consumers the confidence in order to be able to grow the economy back. They're very sensitive just now. The whole thing is is very uneasy. And and if we treat this badly, if we get it wrong, then all we'll do is crush their ambition and hope, and they'll turn on themselves even more. So we need to give people hope and confidence that things are coming back through handling the pandemic, but also showing that government's prepared to invest in people as well. That will turn out to be better in the long run, rather than ramping up taxes just now and crushing that confidence. Well, let's talk explicitly about taxes. I like your self-depiction there as the Corporal Jones of this election going around <laughs> crying, don't panic. But let's let's talk about income tax. Let's talk about the Scottish. You say that you, you, you can't um, ramp up taxation too high, but the, in, the Scottish Parliament has, has control over, over the rates and bands of income tax. In 2016, the last Scottish elections, you were talking about a 1%, a one penny tax rise hypothecated, put, put precisely to education, education alone. You were talking then about raising 475 million from that. Are you still in favour of increasing Scottish income tax by a penny to fund education? No, uh, we've done that. We did that in the last parliament. Um, they did, the SNP did it slightly different from what we were proposing, but we were we were content with that. No, we've done enough. It's all about that fine balance. It's about being prepared to invest more in order to make sure we get enough money in the public services but making sure we don't take too much money out of people's pockets. But now that quantum of money is dwarfed by the amount of money that we're borrowing. It's yes. dwarfed. So it will make a minuscule difference if we were to pose an extra penny. No, the central purpose has to be just now about restoring confidence. We won't do that by increasing taxes. In fact, we won't make much difference to the income for the government by increasing taxes yeah. either. Yeah. In fact, it may be counterintuitive. So we might re- reduce the amount of money. The actual revenue, the actual t- tax take, yeah. Exactly, exactly. So that's why it's all about, to me, is all about investing in skills and talents, making sure we keep people's confidence up as we come out of the pandemic so they spend, and then together we can grow the economy. But how on earth do you balance the books if you are not to increase taxation, as you're saying there, and I appreciate that distinction between the now and the 2016 election, but if you're not to increase taxation and you're not to cut expenditure, how on earth do you balance the books? You grow the economy. You raise more tax because you because you raise more tax by people spending more, by people earning more, by the country earning more, by the country being more productive, getting our productivity rate up, by making sure we're investing in renewables so we can create more jobs through that way. More people working, the more they'll um, will be able to gather the tax in, the more money we'll get for the government overall, and the more likelihood we'll have of dealing with the deficit and the debt in the longer term. What, do you, what do you do? You've got to grow the economy. There's no other way. Forgive me. What, 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 what do you do about local taxation? Can, would you scrap the council tax? And if so, what, what would you replace it with? Yeah, I mean, it, it's long overdue. I mean, the SNP promised this 14 years ago and still haven't done it. I don't know how many reviews and consultations and exercises they've done on this and still not moved. Yeah, but that's because everything they look at turns out to be a stinker by comparison <laughs> with the existing. No, they, they, well, they, they look at local income tax, and that which you put your party favoured or used to favour. No, no so what, what we're proposing now. go for? Uh, land value taxation. Um, okay. We think there's a way of actually making sure that we get the proper value of land recognised in the tax system. So people aren't penalised for improving their properties and their businesses. So that we can make sure that if you've got good infrastructure that's supplying that piece of land, so road, you know, broadband, electricity, you know, good access to good supplies, then you should pay for that through the tax system. 
So that that's the way we think we should do it. Now, that means, I think, you can get greater value of all the land. So you don't have the land banking that some companies go in for. You can exploit fully the potential of all the land in all the best places. Uh, I mean, I understand for business... For the land value taxation. I understand for local business taxation, you're talking about being payable by the owner of the land rather than the... Than, than the leaseholder and you know we can talk about whether that deters investment that could be productive what, what, what would you do charging people you know individual householders individual residents who are currently paying council taxation if you do it on the basis of land that could penalize for example elderly people living in a, a large house that used to be the family home still a big property in terms of, of land value but their income might be fixed yeah you can have transition arrangements so for instance the, the, the common example is if you've got a pensioner who lives in a city centre, which is a great site. You know, you could actually see how a business could get greater economic value out of that plot of land compared to, with this one house. You could see yeah. that. You've got to have transition arrangements for that so that people aren't penalised for the circumstances that they found themselves in. So gradually over time, that changes, of course, but you have transition arrangements to make sure that people don't face that kind of cliff edge cost all of a sudden. You make the transition. That's the way you deal with but, it. But land, land value taxation sounds to me awfully like the rates, which, which were scrapped to bring in the poll tax, which was scrapped to bring in the council tax. Is there anything that works with local taxation? Yeah, because th this gives it proper value of the land rather than just the property on it. So it's making sure that you've got the best the best income out of the best economic valued land. That's what effectively it is, and that's how different it is from a property-based um, taxation system that's based some, on the building that's on the land, if that makes sense. There's going to be some big losers, potentially, from that. They ain't going to like it. And, and you know, um, what happened with the poll tax was when, when the losers screamed, the, the winners kept quiet. And, and yeah. you ended up getting in so many um, alternatives to, to the system, so many opt-outs that, it, that, that, that it, it became even more contentious than it already was. And, and, and you know, change is difficult. I mean, I, I accept change is difficult. Um, but you've got to, if you're going to try and get the best value of the land that you've got and the best economic potential out of the land in Scotland, you've got to put in systems that incentivize that. So that's why you know, we want to work with others to get a cross-party consensus on okay. this. Um, and we'll do this through the cross-party working group that was there before the pandemic that collapsed through the pandemic. So we want to work with others to make this happen. We know yeah. it's challenging, but we think these radical solutions are necessary in order to get economic growth in the country. You, you say, Mr. Rennie, you know, it's in capital letters, this one, your party will put recovery first. It's a slogan, as I say, in capital letters. But what does that actually mean? What, what slips down, down the queue if, if, if recovery is being put um, first? It's a constitutional debate. Um, essentially independence. Because um, the SNP, I think if they were honest, their slogan would be put independence first. Ours is put recovery first. I think they would say it's put recovery first, uh, for, for first, second, and third, and the independence that they, they get to it when it, when it comes. I'm sure they would say that. I'm sure they will say that when I do the podcast with, with the SNP. But, 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 but in this five-year term, they have said, it shifts around from time to time, but yeah. they have said independence will be a priority. And we know that independence is all-consuming. We remember the parliament between 2011 and 16. It was consumed by independence for years on end. We've seen with Brexit how all-consuming it still is. How much, I mean, we've seen in Northern Ireland just in the last fortnight 
how challenging the consequences of these big constitutional changes are. Mm -hmm. There is no doubt it will swamp everything. Okay. There will be no space to do anything else. I'll come to that. I'll come to that shortly. I'll come to that. I want a substantial discussion on that. But let's let's let me quote something from you about policies, about policy priorities. You're saying put recovery first, and you say people want, and I quote, a needle sharp focus on jobs mental health, our NHS, schools, and the climate crisis. You're naming specific policy areas. Now, if you're doing that and you're saying they come first, does that mean, for example, that policing, transport, and higher education have to go hang? Well, they're part of the economic growth. They're part of the security of the country. We shouldn't neglect them completely, of course. But in terms of the change, the energy, the resolve from politicians to find solutions to these things, that's where the focus has to be. So we need a good transport system in order to deal with the climate emergency. Of course we do. We need to make sure we build more homes, again, to find homes for people, but also to deal with the climate emergency. So there's, you know, these things are all wrapped up together. But what the issue is, is how do we get into a place where we've got a better country than when we started off with, with the pandemic? That's got to be the objective, and it isn't but, through independence. But, but you said jobs, mental health, NHS, schools, and the climate crisis. If, if you're not actually prioritising those, you're not actually prioritising anything. There's nothing no, really coming to the no, top no, of the queue. I mean, we're prioritising them over independence, Brian, because independence would be all-consuming. These issues are the top priority to deal with the recovery. Within, say, imagine you were First Minister. What, what would you be? Okay, you wouldn't prioritise independence. I get the concept. We'll talk about that in a minute. But what would you actually prioritise if you're not choosing those that you named? It strikes me you're not really prioritising anything. It doesn't amount to a strategy at all. Yeah, I don't want to repeat myself. <laughs> but effect, effectively, it is. It is about making sure, because independence is all-consuming. Okay. These are the issues we need to deal with. That These are central to the to the recovery of the country. So investing in okay. health. Let's talk about some individual policy areas. Education, one of the ones listed in your, your top priorities. You, you say it's about helping pupils bounce back. You've got that on your commitment card. I'm not certain what that means in practice. What it means is, is we're giving pupils the chance to, to recover after so many months out of education. It's not about putting extra hours in the day, extra classes in the summer. It's not about that. This is about making sure that every minute counts in the classroom. That's why we call it bounce back as opposed to catch up. Because bounce back is about making sure that, for instance, we have more teachers who, so we can cut class sizes so every pupil gets a better experience for every minute they're in the school. Mm -hmm. So that we've got, for instance, outdoor educational experience, a guaranteed outdoor educational experience for every child. And we'll have a fund in place to make sure that every child, no matter what their background, gets a chance to enjoy that, because many of them have missed out on that experience in the last year. So those are the kind of things that we'll do. We'll make sure that we can stop the massive mushrooming of the um, casual teaching uh, profession. There's, what, one in 10 teachers are now on casual contracts? That's a massive increase. And it's not good for pupils because they don't get continuity. They don't get the good education experience every single minute of the day. So it's really about when we say bounce back, yes. we mean making sure every minute counts as opposed to catch up, which is more hours, your summer schools and stuff like that. We don't yeah. want to punish pupils. We want to give them a good experience. Do you think that, I mean, the, the SQA external exams like the hires are, are currently suspended for, for understandable reasons of, of the pandemic. Some say they should be scrapped altogether. Will SQA external exams return uh, if, if you have influence over that decision? Yeah, we've. what we want to do is to put teachers in charge of the SQA in Education Scotland because uh -huh. they've not had a particularly good period uh, over the last 
in what, a couple of years, if not longer, in fact. Um, the exams crisis was one example, and the response to the pandemic was another. If we don't have a set view about whether exams it should go. Um, we think we should allow the work that the teachers are going to do in terms of literacy and numeracy reviews that we're going to put them in charge of. They need to make the determination as to whether the current exams arrangements are suitable. Now, of course, you could change it. You can do more um, all-year-round um, coursework yes. that's assessed rather than just the big hit exams. Now, that, that's an option, but we don't want to set any um, political criteria around that. We but surely, surely, parents need, surely parents need to know, you know, pupils are coming up to that age when they're going to be voting, need to know if they vote Liberal Democrat, are they going to get a party that's backing the continuation of the hires or not? I mean, they, you, you don't seem to be able to say that. Yeah, because because it's not for politicians to make a determination as to whether the, the, the hires stay in the current form. We want to put teachers back in charge because okay. they're the experts. Okay, okay. Let's talk about mental health. Denise, you, you've dealt with very substantially in your Holyrood contributions over months, if not years, years indeed. You're talking now about mental health first aiders in the workplace is one of the ideas. How would that work in practice? What you need to do is have a, a trained um, worker who is in every single work. Um, but if you have somebody who is is trained in that, they can they can be involved in the early intervention, the identification okay. of people who are finding it difficult. And they'll have the tools to be able to help individuals. So it's basically, it's the, it's the low-level preventative work that we often miss out on. So schools have made a bit of, a bit of progress on this in recent uh -huh. years, where they have individuals who are constantly alert to this issue, uh, this issue and are there to support the pupils and the staff directly in schools. I want that for every workplace. So well, we have a mental health suitable yeah. environment for everybody. I could see how that early intervention could be helpful, but it could also be, could also be if it's wrongly deployed, it could be intrusive. It could be unwelcome to, to the individual concerned. We've had some training in the, the parliament ourselves personally. Um, Sam H put on a, a, a very effective course for us uh, for, on that exact issue. How do you make sure that you're there to provide support for individuals whilst not being intrusive? And the one massive revelation for me was that asking somebody if they're contemplating taking their life is not something that triggers them to take their life. And that was quite a revelation for me because I was worried about, you know, how do you deal with that? You're worried about an individual. And that's at the centre of what the mental health first aid training is about. Now, we've had to suspend it through the pandemic. There's been no training on mental health first aiders. I think exactly that's exactly the thing we should have accelerated it. But that's exactly the kind of professional support and training skills that these people get to be able to handle these things very sensitively. It is important we get this right, but we cannot think by just standing back through fear of being intrusive or triggering something that will cause further problems. It doesn't. The, the arrangement we've got just now is far too standoffish, and that's why we've got a problem in our society. Let's... let's we can talk for hours on, on that topic, we could talk for hours on many of these topics. Let, let's turn to moving on. Let's talk to the environment about the environment. You say um, within your environmental policy, you see you want to cut food miles, you know, shorten the supply routes by valuing quality seasonal produce. And I get that. I get it. I get it. You think Scottish food's the berries. I get that. Uh, uh, sorry for that one. But, but, <laughs> but does, does, that, does that mean restricting in practice? Does that mean restricting the year round imports of, for example, I don't know, seasonal fruit and veg from, from um, non-seasonal rather, fruit and veg from, from southern Spain? If not, what, what difference does it make? 
No, what, what we're trying to do is that people, I think, are more aware now, probably than ever before, about, first of all, about food miles and the quality of Scottish produce. Yeah. Because the supply chains were disrupted through the pandemic. And therefore, they've been exposed to good Scottish produce. And I think we're good at actually promoting our own um, the, the, our own produce much more effectively than we used to be. It, it's not all pies and chips. There's actually good quality produce in Scotland. So I think it's making sure that government gets behind that and does it in a pro- promotional, encouraging sense rather than any punitive action to stop supplies from elsewhere. I'm a liberal. I believe in free trade. I believe in, in global cooperation. I'm not in favour of just cutting supplies off from other parts of the world. Okay. But what I want to do is incentivize people to buy local because it's good. You said that you're a liberal, you're a liberal leader of the Scottish Liberal Democrats. I wonder what you feel your party has these days as, as its USP, which I'm taught means the unique selling point. I think it means that anyway. I mean, the SNP have got independence. I get it. You're again that. Labour have got socialism or variants. They're on. The Greens have got ecology. I reckon most folk know what the Tories stand for. But where, where do you fit in these days in terms of your overall pitch? I mean, you're not being just sort of shoved off the political park bench by all these others. At, at the centre of our party is individual freedom and liberalism. It's about being internationalist in outlook. That's why we were the foremost party campaigning against Brexit. It's we're in favour of making sure that we protect individual freedoms, which is why we're against vaccine passports. We, we were very clear about centralisation of the police because we believe in community power and action. That that was a terrible mistake, and we were absolutely spot on on those issues. We believe in investing in people, in the skills and the talents of people, which is why we focus on mental health and early years education. So all of those things are good liberal issues. Joe Grimmond used to say, liberalism is really about a kind of a way of life as much as it is a list of policies. Now, I've given you a list of policies there, but actually it's about how you conduct yourself. It's about partnership. It's about liberalism. It's about freedom. It's about the power of the individual to do great things when power's in their hand. And that's what we're about. And I think we are distinctive from all the other parties. Of course, they steal bits and pieces of all that from time to time. But we are steadfast on liberalism. And that's why we are still a strong and growing party. You picked up there, Mr. Ian, one of the policies. I should have asked you about that actually earlier, but I'll pick it up now. Vaccine passports. I mean, what, what if they work? What if they allow people to go on holiday? What if they allow people to go into to restaurants and uh, for a meal or, or, or a pub for a drink? You know, you, you're talking about big brother society, but aren't these fears exaggerated? Yeah, I, I mean, I, to be honest, I tend not to get too carried away about this. Um, but what I believe is that, first of all, I think they largely will be pointless because we'll almost be at the stage where we vaccinated everybody. Okay. Um, second of all, I think when the government gets to the position where it's insisting that people get medical treatment to get access to everyday services. I think that's quite a step to take. And then the third thing is, there's many young people who've sacrificed a huge amount through this pandemic. So if the government does want to bring them in earlier, it's the very people who've sacrificed a huge amount, even though they weren't largely affected by the virus, who are going to suffer most again. So so therefore it's going to divide society. So for all those reasons, I think it's an unwise step. You know, I don't get too carried away about massive conspiracies about Big Brother. I just think on the health grounds, government insisting people take treatment, I'm not sure about that. You know, dividing society, I don't think that's a good thing. And then I think they're largely going to be pointless because people are, in a voluntary sense, coming forward for the vaccines because it's such a great thing. Let's talk about about the parliament ahead, the, the Scottish parliament ahead, the possibility that there could be a coalition again or arrangements whereby parties 
cooperate. Now, you, you, you cooperate with the Conservatives, your party rather, cooperated with the Conservatives at a UK level. Could you cooperate with the Conservatives in, in, the, in the Scottish Parliament, in the, in the Parliament ahead that lies before us? No, there's, I mean, there's a, I mean, it depends what you're talking about. I mean, we, we work with other parties. Yeah. Um, a lot. Something more than just to, on an individual bill yeah, or something like that. Yeah, you know, you have, you have to do that, don't you? Because I mean, if there's a part, if there's a yeah. parliament of minorities, you have to try and work together. Yeah. So that that sense, and we're 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 more content for that model of partnership because we worked with the SNP in the last year yeah. through the pandemic. We've worked with Labour in the past and various other things, um, and so but we're not interested in coalitions. But D- Douglas Ross, the leader of the Scottish Conservatives, talked about a pan-unionist coalition, his party, yourselves, and and the Labour Party. No no deal, no dice on that one. I mean, Douglas is not serious. Um, You know, he's never once picked up the phone to me. Would you like him to pick up the phone to you? (laughs) No. No. The fact is... Would you answer if he could? (laughs) You never know. I'm a polite guy. Um, Uh, But but he's actually, for all his public claims about insisting that we work in partnership, not once. Has he bothered to pick up the phone? Now, I've got Ruth's phone number, so he, he could easily get it, but he's not even tried. And that tells you something about how serious he is. He's not really he's trying to take votes from us and Labour uh-huh. rather than actually trying to win votes. He, he is, he is in business to win votes for his own party rather yeah, but, than for but, your party. Not, it's a reasonable endeavour, surely. Yeah, but when the SNP are up at 50% in the opinion polls, you'd think you might try and persuade the bigger chunk of vote to come to you rather than going after other parties. Um, you know, because I, in order to keep the United Kingdom together, we're going to have to persuade some of these people to come back. You're not going to persuade them to come back with a Tory-led campaign, which is only appealing to their core vote, is not interested at all in reaching out on a whole range of other issues to try mm-hmm. and bring people back. We are. I think Labour are, but I don't think the Tories are. Now, that's not how you keep the United Kingdom together. You have to reach out, not just have a consolidation strategy. Are you saying, in essence, that people, from your perspective, should vote anything but SNP? Um, no, I've not said that. Um, what I have said is... Are, are you saying that now? Are you saying no, that in what, practice, to preserve the union, people should vote anything but SNP? No, no what I'm saying is um, that people should... No, the parties need to recognise that if we're going to keep the United Kingdom together... We need to persuade people not to support independence anymore. Uh, we need to win them back. We're not going to win them back with Douglas Ross's dark strategy. And his, there is a reason why his party is in decline in terms of support. The reason why he's not going to end up with more MSPs in this parliament than, than Ruth achieved last time round is because he is going backwards. He's not got an agenda that's broad in its reach. Ruth did. Ruth did manage to reach out. Douglas is not. He's gone backwards. And in fact, I think it's only the Liberal Democrats that are likely to gain seats back from the SNP this time. Could, could, you, could, you work, could you work with the Labour Party? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've actually been impressed by Annis. I think he's changed the party. I think we all know that I've had issues with the party, Labour Party in recent years, whether it's on, on Brexit, the review, to, the review about constitutional reform across the UK, um, the centralisation of the police, for instance, they supported that, and of course Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. But I have to say, Annis is just different, and he's, you know, he's got an approach. I mean, one thing he certainly. So we could be back if, if the numbers stack up. We could be back to the days of 1999 to 2007 yeah, when it was a Labour Lib Dem coalition. It's, it's too, it's too early for all that stuff. Um, that's, I, I think possible, that's feasible. Yeah, but you know, but you know, it's it's 
what one thing is guaranteed, we couldn't work with the Conservatives in that coalition arrangement. You know, I'm, I'm a partnership kind of person. I like to work together with people to achieve things. I think for the next parliament, we're talking about parliament minorities and working on individual issues. You, Longer term, who knows? You, you previously said to me in an interview quite some time back, but talking about cooperation on the budget. Now, you managed to cooperate to some extent on the Scottish budget this year with, with Kate Forbes, the finance secretary, on, on detailed things about education, mental health, etc. Et but you said previously you couldn't cooperate with the SNP on the budget because that meant crossing a bridge yeah. to a party that was an independence supporter. Is that is that is that bridge still an obstacle for you? Yes, it is. Um, and the reason why we were able to reach an agreement this year is because the bridge is the election campaign. You know, we were dealing with an election campaign when once you could have theoretically brought down the government by them failing to reach an agreement on the budget. Yeah. And you could have resolved that. You could have stopped the independence movement, the work within government on the independence issue by that. But we can do that through this election. The hand It's in the, the hands of the voters to decide how this was resolved. And that's why we were able to reach an agreement. And we also thought during, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, yeah. we do need to reach out and try and work a bit more cooperatively. Do, do you, you mentioned independence several times. Do you, would you completely seek to rule out a referendum on independence in the next five years, Scottish Parliament? Just say no. Yeah, um, we're saying we don't want another independence referendum in the next five years. If you vote for us, we won't vote for one. Do you believe the, 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 the Scottish Parliament should seek to avoid it? Do you believe the Prime Minister should veto it using Westminster's power over the Constitution? Yeah, I mean, it's up to them to decide. I just know what we'll do. And what we will do is vote against it. Because I want to... One thing I've learned in recent years is that if you say something, you just stick to it. Um, and we're telling the voters we'll vote against it, so we will. Um, that's at the heart of what we're we are saying. We think it's the wrong priority. It's distracting. It's divisive. We need to focus on the recovery to put recovery first. But the SNP, would say, that, the SNP would say that there's been a material change in circumstances because of Brexit that entitles Scotland to have another vote on those different yeah, circumstances. Yeah, there has been a material change. We've just seen how utterly chaotic, massive, big bang constitutional changes. So let's not go there again. Let me turn you to, finally, turn you to your own proposals that, that you're beginning, well, you, you've evinced them for many, many years, but you, you're, you're putting them down in some, some detail on the reform of, of the UK. You've got a report from your party called Bring Our Country Together. It talks about a declaration of a federal United Kingdom. I, I, I know in concept, in theory, what the, what the world means, the word means of a federal UK, but I mean, who are the states who are going to federate? I don't, I don't, quite, I don't quite get it. Is it the is it the UK nations? Is it the regions of England plus the UK nations? German lender, US states? What, what, what sort of thing are you talking about there? At the centre of this, I mean, people think we need to have equal-sized institutions across the United Kingdom in order to have a federal state. That, that doesn't even happen in America. Um, no, what, what we're talking about here is how we reach agreement between the different parts of the United Kingdom, whether that's Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, the mayors in England, the regional authorities in England. They should be part of a joint decision-making body on areas of common interest. That at the centre, at the centre of federal government, that's what it's about. Do you have a parliament for England? Do you have a legislative tax-varying no, no, parliament for England? No, you know, England can decide what it wants itself, um, and you don't actually have to have any change. What you do need to have is where a body has got an interest in an issue. So, for instance, Manchester's got considerable powers. Where they've got those powers they should have a say on issues of common interest across the United Kingdom as far as those issues are concerned. But, so but so basically, it's about 
in, I suppose it's a dispute resolution procedure of sort. I don't want to get too boring and technical about it. No, but it matters. It matters because in, in, in Germany, for example, the, the, you have the lender and you have the federal government. And there's the Grundgesetz, the, 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 the foundation law, um, which defines the, the, the powers that are at lender level and the powers that are at federal level. You, you're not talking about that. You're talking about mm-hmm. a bit of a mix. Well, we're talking about an organic process because I think this will develop over time. I think people have seen Manchester and they thought, other cities have thought, we could have that. We could have a leader of our region who is able to drive the economy, help with cutting crime, deal with the welfare issues. That's local government. That's not federalism. No, no, no. Well, it, it is because what we're doing is we're giving those individual institutions a say in the central decision-making process mm-hmm. through a federal structure. That's what that's about. And they currently don't have that to say. They don't have any say on common issues, common interest, Across these powers, and again, and you're, talking about UK, you're talking about UK council of ministers. You're talking about powers being reserved as they are at the moment, powers being devolved, and then partnership powers. But surely mm-hmm. that's so so vague; it's meaningless. The the UK government could consult on these partnership powers, but could just then pretty well do what it liked. Yeah, but that's where we need to get a cooperative structure. It's about basically changing the mindset in the United Kingdom, rather than Westminster always deciding. We're actually doing things together, reflecting the different interests in the nations and regions of the United Kingdom. Now, that's going to evolve over time. There is no fixed arrangement with this because Britain doesn't work like that. We kind of evolve our constitution over time. And I want that. I want to go with the grain of this, but I want to make sure at the centre of it is a much better ethos of partnership working, of making sure that we saw through the pandemic, for instance, you know, we had to work together through the Four Nations approach much more effectively than they had done before because it was in our common interest to do so. That needs to happen much more often. Well, Irani, thank you very much indeed for joining me for this Herald podcast. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by The Herald. We're giving you the chance to get exclusive access to even more insight, analysis and opinion with a Herald subscription. Take 20% off an annual rate with the code Herald New 2021. This offer is for new subscribers only and is only available with the promotional code. Subscriptions will renew at the standard rate unless cancelled. And sign up to our free evening politics newsletter, Unspun, to get snap analysis from some of our top contributors every day. Head to heraldscotland.com for the details.